Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we will have honest, courageous, and fun conversations about how women are plugging into climate, energy, and sustainable solutions for the planet. I am your host, Megan Bennett, and on this podcast, I will be giving women who are doing the vital work of saving our planet a platform to share their stories, their ideas, and their dreams for a better future. And I hope these conversations will inspire us all to plug into our personal missions and expand what we think is possible for our families, our communities, our work, and ultimately our planet, starting today. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. We have Dr. Kimberly Nicholas on the podcast today. Kim is an Associate Professor of Sustainability Science at Lund University in Sweden. She is the author of the really important climate book, Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World, which came out in March 2021. She writes for publications including Elle, The Guardian, Scientific American, New Scientist, Decanter, and Carbon Brief. Her monthly newsletter with actionable, evidence-based advice for facing the climate crisis with facts, feelings, and action is called We Can Fix It and it has over 4,000 subscribers. Kim's book, Under the Sky We Make, really shook and woke me up to the urgency of the climate crisis, and her personal commitments and laser-focused action are truly an inspiration. She's a climate scientist who uses storytelling in this book to help connect us to the realities and the opportunities. One of the stories she shares is of her great-grandmother, Clara, and her carbon legacy on the planet. Yeah, that story I, I told in Under the Sky We Make comes from a conversation I had with my sister where we were talking about the idea of future generations and how that's so important, but so abstract. I mean, these are people that don't exist yet, that may not come to exist, particular people that we may or may not ever meet. And it actually became a lot more concrete for me thinking about previous generations. You know, we are the future generations of our ancestors. And looking backwards through history of what has actually happened, which we can know something about, you know, more so than some aspects of the future, helped me make it really more tangible, I guess, that, okay, I, my great-grandmother, Clara, who I never met, traveled across the ocean. She actually fled what is now Ukraine in the early 1900s for the U.S. And she left two pieces of carbon behind. So one is this engagement ring or wedding ring that I wear, which she sewed into her jacket to escape detection. Because if you were caught to be fleeing with your husband, they knew you were escaping. And the second is the carbon that's still in the atmosphere from that trip that she made 100 and almost 20 years ago, and that will be there for hundreds of generations. So burning coal by a train to cross Europe and then a steamship to cross the Atlantic, some of that carbon is still there. And this is the legacy that humans are leaving that will be the most important legacy, actually. It will far outlast, I mean, the carbon in the atmosphere lasts 10,000 years, some, some of the carbon we burn today. So if you consider Stonehenge or the Great Pyramids are around plus minus 5,000 years old, humans just the longest lasting way that we're affecting life on Earth now and for hundreds of generations to come is our carbon legacy, how much carbon we're leaving in the atmosphere. When we think of it on that scale, I, I hope it puts into perspective. And, you know, when, when Clara was alive, humanity had used almost none of its carbon budget for stabilizing temperature at the Paris levels. 
my grandparents similar it was like 90% still remaining my parents something like 70% and in the last 40 years of during my lifetime humanity has used up almost 40% almost half of our total carbon budget so that budget is a budget forever for all people who have or ever will live for all of time and it just makes you think wait a minute where you know we have to make these changes. We have to make this fast and fair transition to a fossil-free world. We can't be the generation that blows this eternal budget for everyone, everywhere, forever. When you say carbon budget, can you explain and elaborate what that means, what that looks like? Warming is caused by humans adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. The biggest one is carbon dioxide. The majority of that, almost 90%, comes from burning fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas. The rest comes from deforestation and habitat change, for mostly for agriculture. So when we add carbon to the atmosphere, some of it stays there essentially forever. And the warming the world experiences is in direct proportion to how much carbon we add to the atmosphere. So what we're doing, I mean, the goal right now is for humanity to completely stop adding carbon to the atmosphere. That's necessary to stop warming. And you might hear a lot about net zero. That's removing as much carbon as we add to the atmosphere. We have to actually get really darn close to actual zero. Um, It's not going to be possible to remove a whole lot of carbon. And we are already in a really deep hole of Basically, our carbon budget is how much carbon can we burn and stay within certain temperature limits. And as I I mentioned, this goal of the Paris Agreement, limiting warming to 1.5 degrees between 1.5 and 2, I mean, we have to um, make a really fast transition to be reducing how much fossil fuels we're burning, something like 10% a year or more in countries like Sweden and the UK. And we're just not on track to do that right now. Many countries are going five or 10 times too slow. The thing that I'm really feeling at this moment is the lack of urgency. As we're recording right now, it's May 2022. We have 86 months of carbon budget left to have a chance at stabilizing the climate at 1.5 degrees of warming. And this can sound abstract, but it, succeeding in that goal or getting as close as we possibly can to that goal is really going to be the difference between life and death for people and places around the world. And there is just so much at stake. If we go over that, we're going to suffer irreparable losses and harm. And I just don't see people viscerally understanding that and acting accordingly. What climate advice would you give to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today? At the national level, I think it's really important to set a stop date for selling fossil fuels. It's really important that government sends a clear signal, this is not the future, this is not a valuable asset, this is a liability, this is a fossil fuels infrastructure and reserves are not money waiting to be happened. They are damage (laughs) that needs to be avoided. And we need a fair transition plan, especially for the workers in those industries, to safely and quickly and fairly transition away from them. So I think a powerful move for governments is to set a stop date. What are the most important actions that individuals can take? We published a paper a few months ago that identify these five high-impact roles. So it's kind of like a a picnic or a smorgasbord. You can pick your favorite and get started uh, on any of them. These are 
the biggest leverage points where individual action can scale up and make a big collective difference. So that's as consumers, as professionals at, at work or in organizations, as role models and how we affect others, as investors, how we use our money, and as citizens. So the consumption role is most relevant for those of us who are highest up on the income ladder. And that actually might start lower than a lot of people think. So if you earn over 38,000 US dollars a year or more, which is the majority of Americans, for example, then you're actually in the top 10 richest percent on earth and in the group that causes half of household climate pollution. So that is a group. And the more you earn, the more that scales. So if you're in that group and or your emissions are higher than the average for your country, it is important to look at your own consumption. But all of us have available, at least if we're lucky enough to live in democracies, uh, all of these roles that we can put into practice. How important is climate activism when we're talking about citizenship and democracy? How important is being political about climate right now? It is really important because when we talk about system change, I mean, I think it's a mistake to think of a system change as a waterfall where citizens just push hard enough and the government completely changes. Now the government's regulating businesses and businesses provide only sustainable products, for example, for people and citizens to consume. So that, that's actually not how change happens. It's not that linear. Instead, we have governments, citizens, and companies who are connected in a circle. We have relationships of production and consumption, for example, or of regulation and lobbying between government and businesses, or education and incentive from governments and our political actions as citizens towards the government. So basically right now we're locked in a vicious circle that's reinforcing unsustainable pollution. And what we need to do is break those habits. So anywhere in that circle where we start to move the system in a better direction, we unlock more possibilities. What was the moment you knew you needed to move from being a climate scientist to a climate scientist sounding the alarm bell? It really hit me when I was listening to Bill McKibben in must have been 2014 give a talk saying the people who should be on the front lines of protests and getting arrested and putting their privilege to work for raising alarm are tenured professors. And I had just gotten tenure and I thought, hmm, he's onto something. I have a lot of privilege. What am I doing with it? And how am I making use of it and trying to raise the alarm and activate and hopefully inspire people to take meaningful personal and collective climate action? One tool that Kim uses to communicate about the climate crisis is a haiku poem. Yes, the haiku is hanging the original protest sign that I made in 2014, which I have to say is looking quite worse for wear now, as perhaps many of us are eight years later, uh, being through some tough stuff in the climate crisis. Uh, it's been to many protests. So the, the climate haiku is, it's warming, it's us, we're sure, it's bad, we can fix it. And it's actually not originally my words. I first heard this phrase at a memorial service in 2010 for my beloved and amazing undergraduate advisor, Steve Schneider, who was a climate scientist at Stanford and was my undergrad thesis advisor. So he died in 2010 and I 
was at this beautiful memorial service and heard John Krosnick, who's a climate psychologist and communicator, summarize it that way. And it really struck me. It landed really well with me. I thought, this is what it's all about. This is how I, what I'm going to arrange my teaching around, for example. I love getting to see the original protest side. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. I mean, Greta Thunberg is much smarter than I am because she painted her her protest sign on uh, plywood. So she was planning for the long haul. This I just made at my kitchen table kind of last minute when my students invited me to my first climate protest. And I wasn't going to go because I didn't know what to do at a protest. I had never been and I didn't know what to put on my sign. I wasn't sure what my political demands would be um, as a scientist. I was very much still in the policy policy relevant, but not prescriptive mode. Now I'm very policy prescriptive. <laughs> I have a lot of policies that I want to prescribe uh, that are research, but you know, then I was I was more circumspect. But I thought, okay, I can put this on a sign. I can make footnotes like this. I can stand behind, and it's information that needs to get out there. I can you know voice these findings. Are you having conversations about eco and climate? grief right now. Yep, definitely. I just supervised a thesis who I believe she passed today. Good job, Rangel. Uh, so Rangel studied climate emotions and dis- climate distress and anxiety. And basically the grief is certainly one of those emotions and effective ways of coping with them, basically. So that's an academic conversation that I'm having. But I mean, as is the case in Britt Ray's new book, which um Generation Dread, which is fantastic, and others. I mean, many researchers and academics who are focusing on this topic are doing so because they've been personally affected and or those they love and around them are affected. So I think none of us is unfortunately getting out of the climate crisis without facing the loss of something that we love and care about at this point. So it's really important to be able to face that and honor that and have rituals and acknowledgement for things we love and care about that we are losing or even have lost and still find ways to keep moving forward and prevent the harm that we can. Where do you think the climate conversation needs to go next? Basically, the conversations I'm having are about urgency. How do we go from, you know, awareness and concern to urgency and action without overwhelming people, burning people out, you know, maintaining people's health and well-being and capacity to be in this work for the long haul because it is a marathon. There's a lot of work ahead of us that needs to be done. It is urgent, but sometimes that means we need to slow down. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to build the relationships and foster the deep connections and enable the deeper transformations that will actually make the fundamental changes that we need. And it's not just about, you know, ticking things off a list and do, 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 do. And, you know, because if you have that kind of approach, you can risk backlash or running over people who get left out and that creates its own problem and worsens inequality. If you haven't listened to the Plugged In episode on climate feminism yet that came out in August of 2022, please go back and take a listen. Kim shares in that episode why consciously centering less privileged voices is critical for climate action what climate feminism looks like on the international climate negotiation stage, and what climate feminism means to her. Finally, to close out this interview with Kim, I asked her, what is giving her hope right now? I actually don't think about hope very much. I think hope is quite misconstrued. 
it's uh, important not to be hopeless because then you can't get out of bed and things feel pointless. But what I actually look for instead of hope is meaning and purpose. And I think that to me is so much more sustaining because hope is more fragile and more outcome dependent often. So if we're only focused on a particular goal, it can be really demotivating if, you know, things aren't going the right way or we don't have full control of everything and we might not be able to have these global outcomes that we want and need and are working towards. But we still need to keep doing the work and doing as much as we can and enabling others to do the same. So I think for me, purpose and meaning are a lot more helpful. Um, What gives me resilience? I think purpose and meaning are really good for resilience because when it feels like I'm actually in the zone where I'm making use of the skills that I have in a way that is helping others, that feels good. And that does build my resilience. And that will look different for everybody. I mean, I'm a scientist, so I can mostly do sciencey things and, you know, try to be a voice for the science. I have changed quite a lot my field of study. I mean, I, my PhD is in the impacts of climate change on wine growing in California. So very much focused on, you know, climate change is bad. And I'm really focused now on we can fix it, you know, that last of the haiku. So that's the name of the newsletter I write every month. I'm really focused on trying to help use the science to inform people about who can do what to make this transition happen that we need. And that does give resilience. But I think I also need rest and play and time with friends and family and loved ones and time in nature, in the garden, bike rides, yoga, reading novels, all the things that, you know, lying in the hammock, trying to look at clouds and think about nothing, like all the things that kind of fill my cup and keep me hopefully healthy and able to keep doing this work. Well, thank you so much for your work, Kim. It is it is reaching, it is rippling. I'm so grateful for our time today. Looking forward to following your work on an ongoing basis and what's next. For listeners, tell us a little bit more about how they can sign up for your newsletter or other places they can uh, reach you. You have an amazing website. So Tell us more about how people can connect. Thank you. Yeah, well, I think the best place to find me is my newsletter. It's called We Can Fix It, and it's hosted on Substack. So it's wecanfixit.substack.com. There I write a lively monthly update on the facts, feelings, and actions to tackle the climate crisis. So I'm really trying to build the community there because I've realized it's a lot more evergreen than social media. I am also active on social media, but when I'm able to write a, not super long, but at least, you know, coherent sentences with references and links and places for more information. And I think it helps people kind of get up to speed and digest a bit more rather than this barrage of social media. But you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. And my website is kimnicholas.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for all you're doing. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Plugged In. This podcast has been created on the lands of Historic Treaty 18 on the traditional territory of the Petun and the Huron-Wendat Nations. I'm grateful to our neighbors, the Chippewas of Saugeen First Nation and the Chippewas of Nawash and Ceded First Nation, for their ongoing work to protect and care for the land, waters, and peoples here on the southern shores of Georgian Bay. 
Thank you to Ursilia Serafini and Summerhill for supporting me with the time to do this work. I'm so grateful to get the chance to be a resident podcaster at Summerhill. It's a real pleasure. For show notes and more information on the episodes, to join the All We Can Save book circle I lead, or to take part in a self-care for climate care retreat, please check out pluggedinpodcast.ca. There you can join my mailing list and follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. Look forward to having you join me next time. Thanks. Take care.